Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke 14. Jesus has been accumulating a huge multitude of people. Part of it is the carnival of this audacious carpenter that stands up to the rulers of synagogues and tells the religious elite where they can spend their free time. Um, he has infuriated the Pharisees and the um, this religious rulership as he's gone around and do this, but he is still teaching in synagogues as he travels on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has explained suffering and evil in the last chapter. He's explained the kingdom of God is waiting for fruit. That's the essential answer to evil, is that God's waiting for a season before evil gets dealt with. Uh, And he has five more chapters with these teachings on this path to Jerusalem. Luke paints the picture of a Jesus who's just a workhorse. Right, he's he's teaching, he's giving parables. Week after week, he's doing this. And last week was a tough chapter. Chapter thirteen, unlucky number. Maybe this is where that comes from. Is the people who will not get into heaven. Like this is the, where that do, doesn't happen. Um, but here in chapter fourteen, we're going to see a picture of who does get into heaven. Much different kind of message, kind of flipping that coin. Um, remember his disciples at the end of 13, if you just look back a few verses, were like, okay, who gets in? Like, if, if these people don't get in, who does get in? And this is a story, we're going to go through a lot of teachings that we saw in Matthew and we saw in Mark, because this really stood out to the disciples. The teaching that's coming at us this morning is something that is counterintuitive. It is not in any other world religion. This idea of humility and grace. Every other world of religion, you have to do something to be better. Christianity is the only one where you don't have to do anything. You simply need to accept and trust. And then God makes you into something better. It's a very different approach to how it goes. um, But that's where we pick up. And we'll start with verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, still accepting invitations, to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Can we do that? So... Jesus accepts the offer of these Pharisees. The way Luke sets this up, well, let's point this out. The fact that Jesus had such conflict with these people and he still accepts invitations to go to their houses tells us something about how we should act with our enemies, right? We're not here to create conflict with people. And if they're going to open an invitation, we're here to accept it. We'll take the, we can go in fearlessly. And Jesus in doing this, I think is extending amazing grace to hypocrites. People he just labeled as hypocrites have a chance to get into heaven, so they're still worth teaching. And just, he just told these people they're going to get left out of the feast, yet he goes into their house to teach them and, and, and have dinner with them and break bread with them. What does that say about the hope of heaven that we all have? No matter how bad we are, no matter what we've done, one second God could say, you're on your way to hell, but with the flip of a decision, he can say, welcome into the grace of the kingdom. Welcome to the feast. Welcome to the wedding feast. 
just amazing. There's always a chance to show godliness to the ungodly. There is always a chance to be kind to the unkind. And in the face of rage, there's always a chance to show grace. You know, and there's just this setup that the picture Jesus paints is not normal human behavior to go eat bread at their house. They're eating bread on the Sabbath. This is a big deal. Jewish culture, they actually, um, this is a formal dinner. In fact, there was a culture in the first century where after Sabbath teaching in the morning, they would go eat at each other's houses. So they actually did Sabbath all day on Saturdays. It was a full day affair for them. And part of the full day affair was a feast. We call this our agape feast, right? You just love one another. But what they were doing in the first century, especially the elites, is they would throw these elaborate lunch. So they say they're going to go break bread, but they'd cook everything the day before. You'd come over and then you'd show off how wealthy you were and how much power you had and how much position and rank you had by how elaborate these lunches could get. They were all according to the law, um, but it was a chance to show people who you were. And then the hope was, and this was the political game, if I invite you over to my house this week for lunch, you should probably invite me over to your house next week for lunch. And let's see who throws the bigger lunch. So if you're somebody that wants to climb up in the social network, you go to the right synagogues, and then you get invited to the right lunches. Does this sound familiar? And then you hobnob with the right people, and you move up in society. And if you're charming at these lunch get-togethers, they might invite you to other ones. So that they would have a whole elaborate setup. And we're going to see that seating is a big part of that. They actually would rank people by who's the most important and then give seats according to that. So every week you'd see if people are rising or falling in the ratings. You know, we, it's a human tendency. We do this all over the place. Humans love to rank things. What's the number one movie that's out? What's the number one song that's out? And we watch things rise with the bullet or fall. Well, they did that with humans in the first century. And this was kind of how they did it. So when they say they went over to the house of one of the rulers to eat bread on the Sabbath, it is likely that he just got done teaching a lesson that actually made that ruler look like a fool. But the invite would have gone out before the teaching, you know, and here's a guest teacher and you have them over. So the more elaborate the feast, the more the host gets social credibility. This is called using church as a networking tool. Right? It's not a good thing, and this is the setup. The way Luke paints this picture, it says they watched him closely. Um, the, the Greek for that is that they, it, it is like they have set a trap, and you watch that trap through your go cam until something steps into it. And that's the kind of watching that they're doing there. They're trying to gather dirt on Jesus. This is a setup, and you think of the hardness, the heart of this setup. Because they went looking around for somebody who was sick and made sure that they were at the house. So, like, you can imagine this ruler of the synagogue saying, go out and find me somebody that's really sick, that's got something this guy can't heal, because we want to trap him in this stuff. So the paratereo, the watched there, is a negative word and to watch something with ill intent. We want it to fall into a trap. So Jesus' disciples are following him, but his enemies are watching him closely to try to find some air in him. The end result is a multitude of people watching Jesus. And we can read the scriptures this way too. We can read the scriptures to try to follow the scriptures, or we can read the scriptures to try to find or read some error into the scriptures. And, and I'm sure most of you have met people who do one or the other. 
You're either reading it for yourself to learn or you're reading it to try to prove Christianity wrong. And when you tell people you're following Jesus and you're seeking his lead, the same thing will happen to you. They will start to watch you and they'll start to watch you carefully. Because when you say I'm a Jesus follower, they're either looking for you to fall into a trap or they're looking to see if you're, if you're for real or not. Are you a hypocrite too? Or are you not? And Satan loves nothing better than hypocritic Christians. So the watching starts to happen. If you never tell people you're following Jesus, this won't happen. You're just another secular person, right? But when you start to tell people, I follow Jesus, that's my life's goal, is to be more and more like Jesus every day, People, that watch, that microscope falls on you instantly. Watch it happen. And then that's the word, verse 2. Behold, Luke, we now know, loves this phrase. Behold, it's kind of like saying... Hey, voila, and, or, or saying to the reader, like, hey, check this thing out that Jesus did. And this is why this is, becomes really striking. It says, a certain man, th- we don't know the person's name, they don't have any prestige, uh, probably because they have dropsy. Um, chapter 13, I just want to remind you, Jesus pointed out that we care for our oxen and our donkeys on the Sabbath. Yet this guy they're bringing in to set a trap with. So look at what they do to a human being, even though they take care of their donkeys and their oxen. So the the dropsy is a disease, not the word we use today. We typically use the word edema edema today. Am I saying that right? Edema, edema, something like that. Um, We don't say, hey, that person's got dropsy. But the reason they call it dropsy is in the Greek, that's a compound word, which means water face. Uh, usually dropsy happens in the ankles or in the legs, but it can happen anywhere in the body that has tissues. What happens is you get a water buildup in the tissue and the water doesn't get, get out. Like when you get a blister and it builds up, imagine a face blister, right? It's extremely painful. It stretches your skin. All your nerve endings are part of that blister. So even just touching it just rages with pain. So you've got somebody that upon looking at them in a culture where everything gets covered but the face, they can see that the person has dropsy, which would strongly indicate that they have, they have water buildup in their face. And the language Luke's uses is the language that a doctor would use. They call it water face, which is the buildup. Lots of causes for this. It can be lack of salt. It can just be that there isn't good heart circulation going on. Um, Tons of reasons for it. Extremely painful. It usually kills you. So it it usually ends up in death, obviously. Um, If any of you have drops, you should go to the doctor immediately. Don't play with this. Jesus then answers. Again, they haven't said anything, but the language Luke uses in verse 3 is that he answers this. So it's a conversation that has words and sometimes not. And Jesus carries on as if they had said, hey, here's a trap. What are you going to do about this guy? This certain man that just showed up. So it was not a friendly dinner. It was obviously a test. They're obviously setting traps for Jesus. And Jesus just throws the question at him. And this is part of what I love about the character of Jesus. Like, don't you want to be more like this? He just drops the question on him. Hey, is it lawful to heal this guy? Do you give me permission to heal somebody on the Sabbath? And, and the problem isn't the healing. Healing's okay. What's, and again, I, I said this last week, the irony of this. Jesus can heal whenever he wants, and these hypocrites can't heal at all. And so, but the healing isn't what's under debate here. What's under debate is if he should do it on a Sabbath or not. Things they don't necessarily have any understanding of because they don't even have the ability to heal. We know this from Exodus 23, 12. 
Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and, on, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. In other words, one day a week, you don't do any of your work on that day. And don't make your animals do your work on that day. And don't make other people do your work on that day. So Jews would get around this by hiring a Gentile to come work in their house one day a week. And that's not the spirit of this law. The spirit of this law is just stop for one day a week. Stop all of your stuff and do some of God's stuff. Just breathe. And it's supposed to be a blessing. The point of the Sabbath was for God to give refreshment to his people every week. And hey, the result of this is that for 2,000 years, Jewish people live longer. They have more babies. Imagine that. You take a day off and you have more time with your spouse, right? To do God's work, their ministry gets better. The music gets introduced into the world. Like David's cycle of, of symphonies and, and his musicians that come in there. Prayer gets maximized. Um, if there were no Sabbath, I think humans would work themselves to death. I think our lifespan would drop by 10, year, 10 years on average. like Because that's what we do. And I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not making an accusation. I would work myself to death. If I didn't say, God, I'm going to give you one day a week, I would just do it until I died. And my wife knows it. Um, generally, humans don't put limits on themselves. Sabbath is the simplest of all limits. And it's the most obvious blessing of all the limits God puts on us as believers. Take one day off and give it to God. Very simple. Yet how many people walk all over the Sabbath like it's nothing? So Jesus asked the question, is it okay if I heal on the Sabbath a few people? Is it lawful? But they kept silent. So imagine an incredible, awkward silence. Everybody in the room knows it's a trap. Everybody knows the guy with dropsy doesn't belong in the synagogue ruler's house. Everybody knows they went and found this guy and brought him into the room. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Looks like you've set up a healing. Is it lawful to do that? They're all just looking at him. Why are they looking at him? If they say yes, they're supporting Jesus' healing. If they say no, they are cold, heartless hypocrites that everybody can see. Right? So in, in, they freeze up in the face of an honest question, an honest, simple question. They're not even able to talk because they just want to accuse. They're so filled with hate, they don't know how to handle grace. They also know this is a direct law from God himself. I'll read it here in a second. Jesus had never breaks a biblical law. But he runs roughshod over human traditions and expectations. He could care less what they've designed around the Bible. He just does the Bible. Imagine how awkward and how hanging this would be. They keep silent, verse 4, and he took him, the man with dropsy, and he healed him, and he let him go. Jesus then answers action with word. No description of the healing. It's just known now that Jesus heals. We know it's instant. It's powerful. Visibly, they could see the dropsy go away right in front of their eyes. Amazing miracle. I can't wait for the CG when the Chosen tries this one out. Uh, the visible change would happen, yet they don't. They can see that, but they can't see Jesus. How blind do you have to be? You can see the healing, you can see the results, you can see the good things happening in your life and other people's lives, but you can't submit to Jesus. 
And this blindness covers the planet today. Verse 5, then he answered them. Again, they have said nothing. He's answering a, a conversation that isn't occurring on the other side. Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that's fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Who doesn't help people? Like, what kind of people are you? You'll help a donkey that's in trouble. You, go to, you see somebody that's twisted their ankle, you'll help them get up on the Sabbath, but you're calling that healing work. The clarity here is beautiful. If you help an animal, why won't you help a human? What's wrong with you? And he points this out. Deuteronomy 24.4, here he throws the Bible back at them. And, and, and again, the donkey, the ox, is a signal for about 12 different passages on the Sabbath. So when he says donkey, ox, he's not just picking these animals ran, randomly. Do a word search in your blue letter Bible, and you're going to find donkey, ox goes with Sabbath on a pretty regular basis. Here's the verse, Deuteronomy 22.4. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help lift them up again. It's an actual command. So in the face of the human tradition, Jesus actually puts them against the actual word of God. The word of God says you should help a donkey or an ox. And if God's saying that for animals, don't you think you should help humans? What's wrong with you? So there's no day condition on the verse that Jesus is referencing. He says on the Sabbath day, the passage has no condition on what day of the week you follow this law. You're supposed to just follow the law. So if in God's word, it's clear and it's simple. You see people that need help. You help them. You mend them. You lift them up. That's what you do. And it doesn't matter what day of the week. you're. you're it's a command from God to do that. So he says, which of you, Jesus actually, and I like this about his, his, he is attempting to convert them. He's doing evangelistic work here and he's in a spot with a hostile audience and he appeals to their goodness. Like, Hey, all of you, the assumption and the question is all of you would help the donkey or the ox. Wouldn't you? Aren't you good people? Aren't you nice? Aren't you decent? And the fact that he appeals to their goodness in the, in the face of their evil shows the self-control that Jesus has in this situation. Verse 6, and they could not answer him regarding these things. In Jewish teaching, when a rabbi got to the end of the questions, he would then start the teaching. So rabbis would ask question, 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 and as long as the students had good biblical answers, he would keep di diving deeper and deeper with questions. So the, the phrase there in, implies that he's turned the ruler of the synagogue into a student, and they got to the point where they were not able to answer questions anymore. What we should expect then is for Jesus to start his teaching on this subject, which is what happens. I want to point out this, this idea of helping people too. I, again, I, I'm going to frame this chapter as how do you get into heaven? There is a piece of goodness that Jesus appeals to, even with people that are acting wickedly. And for us to perceive non-believers as that God has put something good in their heart that can connect to the Holy Spirit. And even in the face of extreme wickedness, appealing to that goodness in people is one of the ways to maybe pull them out of that wickedness. Their actions are not who God has made them to be. Their actions are simply fallen, just like ours were before we chose to follow Jesus. So, you know, you run into this a lot. Like, you know, what do we do on the Sabbath to do God's work? What does it mean to heal people on the Sabbath? Like, we haven't seen, you know, this morning we had people get together. I saw hugs when people walked in the door. I saw food get brought. I saw hand warmers show up. Like, there is, when we get to 
church on a Sunday, part of what we do is we look around the room and say, who needs healing? And people say, how can I get involved? What can I do? Well, look around the room. Who's sitting by themselves? Who needs somebody to talk with at lunchtime? There is so much ministry to be done when it comes to prayer, welcoming people in love, set up, clean up, listening. For my part, I eat things and enjoy it, which is a compliment to the chef. You know, th- there, there is work to be done every single Sunday, and that work is so much more than what we do when we just study the Word. We study the Word so that we can do God's work. It is not fulfilling God's work to hear His Word. It's simply what we do to get filled up so that we can do His work. So what do we do on the Sabbath? We do God's work on the Sabbath all day. And so for some of you, that's going for a walk in the park and just hanging out with people and refreshing. Some people just want to talk all afternoon, talk theology. Some people want to take a nap and rest because that is part of what rest is all about, is actually taking a rest. When a Jewish teacher then leads off like this and his students come to that point of learning, the edge of learning that zone of proximal development where they can't answer the questions anymore, then the rabbi says, okay, now I've got something to teach you. And so Jesus put them at that point. He put this law of helping people against the the law of rest on a Sabbath, and he's trying to help them see that rest is not does not include like hurting people on, or watching people suffer on a Sabbath day. That that is not what he's counting here. There's a difference not between work and healing. There's a difference between your work and God's work. And that that definitive line is clear in the scriptures. And he's trying to show them that. Verse 7, he addresses the positioning. Let Let me look at this feast we're having and how everybody's got a seat here. And he says, so he told a parable of those who were invited. And when he noted how they chose the best places, Jesus came into the the synagogue leader's house, he watched, he noticed, he observed, so that when it came time for him to have a word, he had something to teach. If our evangelists spent half as much time learning about the people they're talking to as they are preaching to them, I think we'd have a lot more successful evangelical efforts. He knows something about the people he's talking to. And he notices that this tradition of placement about strategic seating for honor, prestige, networking, who's going to sit by who. Like we do this at wedding feasts and Jesus points this out. Look, look, look at what we do with this. The standing in the community then is ironically determined by where they sit. And that, that is part of this setup. And he says to them in verse 8, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, general principle, do not sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and, 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 he, and he who invited you and him come and say to you, please give this place to this man. I need to move you because somebody higher than you just showed up. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when, you, but when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Who gets into heaven? Humble people do. People that aren't about what position they have here on earth. It's just not how they operate. So we don't have a seating custom, and it's easy to dismiss this lesson. But every culture has a way to display prominence and importance. If if you want to see it, go go to any academic professor department meeting and watch it happen. Go to any conference and you'll, you'll instantly be able to see that every culture has a way to display importance from one human to the other. 
there's a certain way that we walk or how we do it, and there's a heart issue. The difference between people that say, how can I serve and how can I impress? And there's a huge difference between those people on those ends of the spectrum. So Jesus says you can either begin with shame, which is a byproduct of pride. When you're super prideful and people have to take you down a notch, it com- pride comes with shame. Or we, can, or we can go with humility and be exalted. When you come in humble and people lift you up, there's exalting going on. And those two things go together. So I, it's an interesting way that Jesus actually appeals to our desire to be exalted the thing that we, that is a good thing in order to convince people to be humble, that there's a, there's a way that people work here. It says you will have glory then. Glory is the opposite then of shame. We humble ourselves and then others can elevate us or we pride ourselves and others can deflate us. One of the two. Can I just have perfect balance? I think I've told this story before, but I'm going to share it again. I went into grad school as an adult. Like I'd been a teacher for a while. I'd been a principal. And I decided I didn't really need to make a name for myself as a grad student. So I went into the program. Lots of other people from around the world were in the program. And on any given research project that was up, the grad students would kind of scrap for position to get assigned these projects so that then they could make a name for themselves and get the best possible position. So being helpful and serving then um, was a countercultural decision to make. Like, how can I help? What can I do to serve? Or I can be the last name on the list. I don't need to be the first. I just want to be able to help and be there. So it's interesting how the world takes that servant's heart and calls it like negatively, calls it brown nosing. Well, you're just brown nosing. You're just sucking up to people. Like it's a bad thing to be a servant and to be helpful. But it's like humility is also freedom, freeing. If I don't need to impress people and I don't have to brag and puff myself up, I can just be in any given room. That takes a ton of pressure off my shoulders. If I can go into a room and just be content with where I've been put. So go and sit down in the lowest place. The point here isn't to get noticed. And when you're not noticed, then you're bitter about it. Right? That's not good. That's called pride. It's just kind of a reverse pride, which is really insidious. The point here isn't to humble myself by debasing myself. I'm going to dress like garbage and look like garbage because I think I'm actually garbage. That's not the point here. Um, That I'm not worthy attitude is its own kind of pride. And the point here is not to be a social outcast on purpose, like the begrudging, I don't even want to be here. So I'm going to go sit in the lowest place because I hate people. Like that's not the point either. The point here is to be content with not having position be part of our agenda. Just be okay with it. I came in, I don't need to be the top person in the room, and I can leave not being the top person in the room. And what I can do is just say, whoever God's going to sit next to me, I'm going to bless the crap out of them today. I'm going to encourage, I'm going to edify, I'm going to do what I can to lift them up and encourage them. And hey, we're not perfect in this. Sometimes in an effort to encourage, we actually stick our foot in our mouth and do it wrong. It doesn't mean we don't keep trying. Right? Some of you know that. Some of you are like, Sean, that's not very encouraging. Well, I'm trying. Friend, go up higher. The, the, this is also um, from the host side. Part of this equation is that if we're a host, it is okay to elevate the humble and say, hey, you know what, everybody? I think I want to lift this person up. I want to put them in a position where we, we put them on a stage. We listen to them. We hear them. Because humble people don't push for that publicity. But sometimes we need to hear from those people too. So sometimes the good and faithful servants that are humble and have been humble for a long time, we maybe want to hear what they have to say about life. 
So to compliment people, to build people up, letting encouraging words be what comes out of our mouth, words of life. Friend, go up higher. Um, There's no mention here of not accepting elevation. Let's be clear about that. Oh, you need to come sit in a higher place. Oh, no, 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 I won't do that. I'm super humble. Okay, if you have to announce you're humble, you realize you just destroyed humility, right? If you have to tell people how much integrity you have, you have no integrity. It doesn't work like that. These are titles other people give you. But your heart is in a place where you don't have to give it to yourself. So there's no mention here also that Jesus has a problem with positioning, elevationing, and rank. He doesn't. Biblically speaking, there are people that Moses put in charge over judging. There are people that David surrounded himself with that had leadership positions. The church is established with 12 leaders that would be the leaders of that early church. Well, 11, one of them screwed up. So the, the idea that, there, that we should eliminate all ranking systems is not what Jesus is talking about here. Just a few what he's not talking about. What he is talking about is the heart that we have and the pride that we have when we encounter other people. How do you get into heaven? Be humble. Verse 11 implies that there is an eternal element to this whole thing. Because humbling and elevating, note the words, will be. In the future, there will be a humbling and an elevating that goes on. So live your life like that. Verse 12, then he also said to him who invited him. So also being as part of the same teaching. When you give a dinner or supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. Remember, that's part of the culture. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Invite more people like this dropsy guy. Why aren't you doing that? 14, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, there's an immediate practice that goes with an eternal consequence. So he talks to the host. Um, This kind of, Jesus saw how exclusive this group was. Here's this itinerant miracle worker and all the top yuppie yups in the religious system showed up for lunch to get that. You ever go to a concert and then they charge triple the price for the VIP tickets? You get to meet the band. And that's what this was. This was the meet the band lunch. And you get to sit down with Jesus and try to corner him yourself. Take your own shots at him. So avoiding spiritual pride by thinking of hosting very differently. We don't invite people to add value to our get together, our soiree. That's not how you invite people. We invite people based on who needs a feast. Who needs a good time? And thinking of that, we should note that Jesus doesn't tell the rich ruler here to give everything away. He does that in Mark 10, 21. Remember that? He had one rich guy that says, how do I get into heaven? And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And he says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. Remember that? And people take that one thing and say, anybody with money should give it away. Yet here we are in a passage where Jesus does not tell him to give all his money away. He does tell him to use that money to bless people. And so, again, we need to know that when Jesus talks to people, he talks to people individually. That it's not necessarily a general principle that everyone with money should use it to feed um, the poor. Because some people with money need to just get rid of the money. The money is what's causing the problem. But with the Pharisee, obviously, it's more about pride and position and not the the wealth. A lot of people don't go into religion to be rich, um, but they do go into religion to be puffed up and to be elevated. Um, 
He says, do not ask. Um, again, don't make a habit of asking is a better interpretation there. In other words, he's not saying it's, it's okay to invite family and friends to a meal. Jesus ate with his friends at the Last Supper, right? So he's not saying it's wrong to eat with your family and friends here. He is saying to this ruler, don't make a habit of that. Don't always invite your friends and family. Or, or a, even a better interpretation there of do not ask would be don't necessarily ask. Try to mix this up a little bit. Yes, your friends and family are always invited, but if your intent is that they also invite you back, then you're networking. Don't do that. And if they can't repay you, it says something about a host that if you're going to host people, the, to host is not with an expectation of anything in return. This is a principle we do see throughout the Bible. That when we give to the Lord, when we give to the kingdom work, when we give on Sabbath a feast for our friends, we don't expect or ask for anything in return. Now, if people do want to give something in return, they can do that, but that's not what we expect. And we never would want to act that way. So this idea of you shall be repaid, he again points us to the future. This references the resurrection of the just. There's going to be a new life, an eternal life, and a resurrection. So he has, throughout Luke, pointed people to the heavenly, not the earthly. By the way, we should note here, the correction of the host at a party is offensive in any culture, even ours. If you make a scene and have the room's attention and insult the host, that is not socially normal in any culture. It's disrespect across the board. So he is interculturally insulting people here. Then Jesus expands it from the mundane lunch parties to eternal kingdom feasts, right? Don't miss that Jesus just gave a key descriptor of those who get into heaven here. Those that get into heaven are people that are humble, and who give without expecting anything in return. So you could be tempted right now to think, oh, it's all about my works. I must then do things to get into heaven. Um, be wary of that. Note the whole counsel of God here. Verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat the bread in the kingdom of God. Like, can you imagine the tension after Jesus says this? Like he insults the host, and then there's this uh, this very the awkward silences are just part of this interaction it's all quiet nobody knows what to do and then you get the wisecracker that says blessed is he who shall eat in the kingdom of god okay you know and, and the, the, just to break the ice a little bit maybe this guy was trying to help the host save face like yeah we're all going to be in heaven together eating bread in the kingdom of god so maybe he's trying to break the tension. Maybe it's thinly veiled opposition to Jesus. Maybe there's this tone. Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right? Maybe it's sarcasm. Maybe it's like, because you won't eat bread here anymore, you're going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. So maybe it's, it's, it's towards that. Maybe it's just an excited, spirit-filled young person, right? Hey, hallelujah! Maybe there's one guy in the room that hears Jesus and he's like, praise God, that's truth you just spoke. So maybe it's the hallelujah brother, right? He's just shouting an amen. So again, there's three very different ways to read verse 15. Um, I kind of like the idea that Jesus got through to one of them. And he's just like, praise God, I'm so grateful somebody's going to say this, you know? And so the fact that he said to him, I think kind of fits that. Now, he said to him, 
uh, and him there is Jesus. There should be a capital H on the him. He said to Jesus, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. Like what a nice thought. Jesus, man, you're on it. Um, and this fits the third idea. Like also, if you go back to chapter 8, 18, that to some who have more will be given. Maybe this guy just gets it. And then he, there's just, just Holy Spirit joy that comes out of this guy. And he's just, wow, this is awesome. So he's, but, and we should note Jesus here is gracefully teaching his enemies to their face. And I don't think you teach people unless you have hopes that they'll learn. So there is, again, how many people are going to get into the kingdom of God? Maybe few, but Jesus is still, there's hope for everybody. If he still has hope for this ruler, he just called a hypocrite. And he's trying to teach. And then in verse 16, he says to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And a certain man being like, okay, now we're going to abstract this. I'm not going to target my host anymore. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they with one accord began to make excuses. But I got a good friend. He's from Nigeria. And, and he just, whenever you, he said, hey, can you come do this? And you're like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can. He goes, ah, lame excuses. And he says it with this wonderful accent. And it makes me happy. Sometimes I make excuses just so he'll say that to me. <laughs> And the first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground. I have to go see it. I ask you to have me excused. Note that an excuse and to be excused are the same root word, right? And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife, Grant, and therefore I cannot come, Michael. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Before we find out how the master reacts, normally at a large feast, this is a banquet, a joyful thing. I just want to point out, Jesus paints a picture of a, a great supper. The word great there, this is something most people would want to go to. I'm going to have an awesome party. And the assumption here is everybody wants to go to a party, right? But Note that this is taught at a great supper, at a Sabbath gathering, at the ruler of the synagogue's house. This is an amazing feast that they're all sitting down to. A lot of them feel privileged to be there. And this master invites many. God invites everybody to the kingdom of God. Everybody has an invite. And this is the thing. Many people are welcomed, but not everybody accepts. Who's going to get into the kingdom of God? People that accept the invite. Right? So it's not about your works. It's about you've been invited. Show up and be there. God's ready for folks to come to the feast. He's made all the preparations for the feast. And then he sends out an announcement. Come for all things are ready. Now in this era, they don't have clocks. So you can't say to people, hey, I'm going to have a feast on Friday. Um, show up at five. You can't do that because everybody reads their sundial differently. So without watches, they have to just say dinner's ready and run people around town to do that. So they'd have runners go announce. And they were literally those that came with a happy message. And we call them evangelistos, right? They're evangelists. They come around with a message that says dinner's ready, right? Got a little triangle that they ring and run around town. It's time to go to the feast. Think about this in terms of evangelism. How many of our evangelists are like inviting people to a feast versus accusing people of what they're doing wrong? But the, the fact is that it's an inv invitation, Jesus makes a thinly veiled parable about how God invites people to the kingdom. 
And Jesus tells the story about excuses. There's some good excuses, some lame excuses. But the excuses are all the same. For the master's perspective, it's all the same. I ask you to have me excused, to accept an invitation, and then the, expecta- the expectation is attendance. If you sign up on that sheet saying, I'm going to go to the murder mystery party, and then you don't decide you can't make it to that murder mystery party, it is a cultural expectation that you tell the host, I can't make it. Please excuse me because I can't be there. And that's a courtesy that you show to people. So the first two people, let's pick these three apart. The first two people ask to be excused. That's a basic courtesy to say, please excuse me. Their request for an excuse is due to the social expectation that it is rude to not attend something you said you were going to go to. Right? It sets people off. So we say things like, excuse me, please excuse me, I can't make it. And, and then it says, with one accord. I want to point that out. Uh, verse 18, with one accord. It's like they have different excuses, but they have one spirit in the excuse. And here's the spirit. They're prioritizing something in their life over the feast of the master. And let's not miss this. Honestly, this is a life-changing lesson if you have ears to hear and eyes to see. If the master has invited you to a feast, what could possibly be more important than that feast? What on earth could be more important than that? And the answer is, when you are invited to a heavenly feast, there is nothing on earth that's more important than that. And you get to the feast and you're like, I didn't like the widgets and I didn't like the table mats. And you can complain about it if you want to, but the reality is you're invited to a heavenly feast. So here's excuse number one. Lame excuse number one. Our work and our ambitions. Note the language there. I must go and see it. Also note that what fool buys a piece of land and doesn't look at it before they make the purchase? Right? Aren't they doing everything backwards? Right? Not a problem to own land. There's, there's not a problem to own land. The problem is the words, I must, putting the world over the master's feast. Kind of lame. I'm going to go look at land versus be at the party that my master made for me. All right. Looking at land might have something to do with agriculture. So clearly cl- crop land could wait. This is the worst of the excuses. But animals need more attention, right? So ex- lame excuse number two, oxen. And the wording here is, I'm going to test. Similar to one, it's to go test oxen is to make sure that they, you're checking their legs, you're checking that they can pull a yoke, you're checking that they're a good thing. But once again, what fool buys multiple, how is it, five yokes of oxen, 10 oxen? What fool buys the oxen and then goes and tests them after the purchase is made? Who does that? So Jesus is painting this picture of two absolute idiots. And they're, they're, not, they're trying to manage their land or manage their animals here. And the first one says, I must, which is an obligation. The second one says, I am going to, which is a determination. Right? The first one feels obligated to go look at the land. The second one has made a decision themselves, at least they own it, saying, I choose to go look at my oxen instead of going to the feast. Man, this just happens all the time. I know we don't have a lot of people here that purchase land and do oxen, but we all make these excuses. We, Every one of us does. Both of them are basically this idea of checking something out after the purchase. I think as an example, Jesus is trying to paint the picture of people just plan poorly. You must do that on the Sabbath, on the feast day. 
well, how come you didn't plan for that the other six days of the week? How come you didn't organize your life in such a way to take care of your business during the six days a week that you take care of your business? What's going on with you? Why are you doing that? So they haven't planned ahead. They don't see the benefit of the feast and they've got, they've got it all backwards. And then you get to a lame excuse number three. Actually, it's hard to put lame in front of that one. This is a pretty good excuse, I think. Family. I got family that wants and has demands of me on the Sabbath or on the day of the feast. This guy just married a wife. That's a new family. It's super exciting. Um, biblically speaking, the Old Testament, there were a few different reasons why young men didn't have to go serve in the army. One of those reasons is if they just married a new wife. They could stay home with that wife, was it for a year? I should have looked that up. And it's like, you know what, young man, you just got married. We all get it. Go stay home, be with your wife. And take care of your wife. Build that relationship. Build that family and knit it together appropriately. Take care of that business at home before you take care of the business of the nation. And have your house in order. So this is, Old Testament-wise, a legit excuse to not join the military, but clearly Jesus paints this as not a good excuse to abandon the master's feast. And this is why the Bible tells us not to marry or yoke unbelievers. Don't do that. Don't mix that up and have a conflict around your faith when it comes to getting married. So they put their spouse over their master. Uh, you know, the best priority we can ever have, husbands, wives, is to tell our husbands and wives Jesus comes first. If you want to be a good husband, tell your wife Jesus comes before you, honey. Want to be a good wife? You know what, darling? Jesus comes before you. Jesus gets the priority over you, and in that, I'm the best wife, the best husband you can ever have. Because I'm nothing if Jesus doesn't come first. If the master's feast isn't the biggest deal, then your priorities are out of order. So, hey, we can't do that. I, I can't do this. That's the language that gets used on the third excuse. I cannot come. By the way, I must, I choose, and I can't, or all three of them are lies. All they have to do is stand up, put their shoes on, put on their wedding feast garments that have been sent to them by the master, and go walk over across town and show up at the feast. So they actually can go to the feast. Nothing's stopping them other than their own brain saying, I can't do this thing. So the spouse then is putting their relationship before the feast of the master. A good spouse says, I'm going to the feast. I'll see you in a few hours. It's really simple. Or mom says like, you know, hey, I need, I need you here right now. Oh, okay. I'll see you after church. Really simple. No, no, no. I need you now. Okay, I'll see you after church. That's the nowest I can get you because the master comes first. But family, when it, family is not going to the feast of the master, family can be one of the toughest things that keep us away from the kingdom of God. And the excuse of family, we, it's a small G good, but it competes with a big G God. And that becomes a battle where it's, we want our, the best solution is have your whole family come to the feast with you. That's the best solution. Now there's no conflict. You look around at the feast, and you're like, there's my brothers, my sister, my grandma, there's my grandkids, there's that ugly little niece I got over there. You know, that's the best solution. But when there's a conflict there and somebody says, I can't come to the feast because of my new wife, you're putting your wife ahead of God and you're not going to be a good husband. You've messed it all up. We could add 
Excuse number five, six, seven. We could just keep piling on excuses, fill in the blank. Whatever takes priority over the master's feast is an idol. It's a want to versus a have to. And Jesus won't put the have to on the master's feast. He does not make people to go to heaven. He's a gentleman. He won't force people to show up for the party. He won't do that. But we create our own have to's then against an invitation and the invitation gets put to the side. Jesus could have bailed out on this feast, by the way. He could have not taught this lesson by simply not showing up at this person's house. So it's interesting because he had a legit excuse too. Hey, you know what? I'm not going to go to your house for lunch because you guys are all out to get me. And I don't need to go to the ruler of the synagogue's house because there's six people over. I'm going to go to the dropsy person's house. Jesus could have rearranged this whole event by refusing the invitation, but he accepted the invitation and showed up, even though he was going to be under attack. And so he's looking at this whole whole situation. Charles Spurgeon says, excuses are curses. And when you have no excuses left, there might be some hope for you. But you just give up. I don't have excuses. I'm going to show up for the feast. Note how progressive this is. I must turns into I'm going to, an external obligation turns into a personal obligation, turns into I can't, an inability to do something. There's a hardening of heart that happens with each of these three excuses. And what's amazing to me is Jesus would have just taught this at the top of his head, but then the language plays out with these kinds of details. Excuses have a progressive element to them in that the more you give excuses, the more they become a habit. And essentially, at the end of the day, you're putting your priorities over the priorities of God. And what happens for a believer sometimes is we go through our Christian life, when we're first Christians, we say yes to everything. And then everything doesn't give us the same emotional kick that we thought it might. We had different hopes for it. And then we, just, then we start making excuses for things. We stop doing the yes things. But the healthiest believers I know still say yes to Jesus whenever there's an invite, whenever there's an opening. I'll do it. Ben Franklin, he that's good, there's lots of quotes on excuses. He that's good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. (laughs) I can tell you that this is the number one thing that stops people from being part of service at a church is that they're not faithful in their attendance. If if you can't be relied on to show up, nobody's going to rely on you to serve. Right? And, and you just think, like, imagine if we had no idea if someone was going to come or not, and yet they're in charge of a ministry. And then they don't show up. Like, what happens to the ministry? Where does it go? Who's going to do it? And so God looks over the whole earth looking for people that are just going to say, I will serve. Yes, I'm there. And, he, and he's looking for all of you that are in that place where, Lord, I just want to serve you. Then serve him. And don't make excuses. Don't come up with other things. Because I guarantee the second you say yes is the second that your oxen are going to need you more or your family's going to have demands of you. Like the battle's going to come the second you proclaim. And that that is instituted into the nature of all this. Remember verse 15, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is all an answer to that. It's like Jesus is using this as his response because the guy says, blessed are those who eat in the kingdom of God. And his answer is, are you ready to go or do you got excuses for that? You're super excited about that, but have you counted the cost? Are you ready to go? Or do you, hey, there's guys that make excuses because of land, because of oxen, because of new wives. What are your excuses? Uh, Again, Jesus is not making friends here. The kingdom of God 
God's word, prayer, worship, fellowship, church, and heaven are reflection of one unto the other. What's going to be in heaven? The same thing we do on church days. That's it. Is that enough for you? So don't corrupt Sabbath into a networking opportunity, is his first lesson. Into rule following and human obligations is another lesson. Don't forget about mercy, healing, and love on a Sunday and for them on a Saturday. Don't skip Sabbath either. Jesus is drawing a careful line here. He's minimizing tradition, but he's elevating the importance of the feast. You should show up to the feast, even if a hostile person invited you to it. But you have a good and a loving God. How much more important is it for you to go to that feast? All three excuses put work and life, this life, ahead of the master and the heavenly life. All three do this. They're functionally the same from the master's perspective. All then are rude in the eyes of the master. He's invited people to come and they don't even want to come because they're too self-serving. Land before God, oxen before God, spouses before God, priorities are human instead of God's priorities. Word, worship, prayer, fellowship, those things get the priority because God made them the priority. Simple. Yet we just come up with every reason why we can't do devotions, why we can't be here, why we can't love that person, why we don't have time to do things for people. Every excuse. And you guys, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not, I hopefully, I'm preaching to brothers and sisters on this. I'm totally convicted by this this week. What do I have time for? Then, the master of the house, being angry because he's been treated rudely, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. In, when it says of the city, the implication here is if these fancy Jewish people won't come in, go up and invite the other Jewish people. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and there's still room at the feast. This is a big feast. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? Lots of people do. Then the master said to his servant, go out into the highways and the hedges. In other words, go outside of town, an image of Gentiles. Compel them to come in that my house can be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Guess what? Who's getting into the kingdom of heaven? People that show up. They don't have to do anything but show up. And this is, I think, combined with humility. Humility makes us think we're not the biggest thing in the world. Maybe our thinking was wrong. And facing our own sin is an act of humility. But the second step to get into the kingdom of God is you have to accept the invitation to the party. You got to. So you show up at the party, you're not taking the top seat, you recognize, I'm just lucky to be here. This is awesome. I wasn't one of the first people invited. But the Lord loves me and invited me because he's got a feast to serve. All the same when it comes to excuses, but those people out on the highways and hedges, they're just like, sure, I'll come to a feast. Hey, great. They show up to the feast. They're given their, their garments to be there. And the master's just happy to have them. Hey, I don't know you, but let's talk. And then you get to know people. The, ma the master won't go through all the trouble of making a banquet just to waste it. Heaven will be filled with people because God's not going to make a heaven and then not have it populated. That doesn't make sense. So the extension, the, the extension of the invitation is two ways. Go into the street, go to the town folk, go to the highways, go to the Gentiles. And the servant's job is a lot like ours. We're supposed to go out and invite people into the kingdom of God. There's a wedding feast of the lamb, wedding supper of the lamb that's going to come. I, I, I want you to be there with me. We might be in the lowest two seats in the place, but at least we'll be with each other and we'll hang out there. 
So look around. Look around church. Like, look around. We're not the elite of our society. We're the, we're the people that came in from the hedges and the highways. People sleeping in the ditch, right? And we come together and we're just hanging out. And this is the heavenly banquet. It's got Gentiles. It's got lame people. Not lame excuse people. Look at the cross section that you got. Redeemed sinners, one and all. And is this a cool enough crowd for you to hang out with? Or is there better networking opportunities somewhere else? You know? Compel them to come. Some people argue this is like arm twisting. This is an argument to go do that. I don't think the word here means that. Um, We don't argue people to come to a feast. We compel them to come to the feast. The word there means to invite with urgency. Hey, the feast is going to start. You should come. Compel them. No, 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 no. You can come. Don't make excuses. So we can throw down everything that sets itself up against the invitation. We take those strongholds down. What, what, other, what other excuses do you got? Give them to me, because there's no reason you shouldn't come. So to compel is to say this is going to be amazing. This is going to be wonderful. The master's prepared it. It's for all the rich people, but you're going to get to enjoy it. Um, it'll be fun. How do you invite people to a party? Oh, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be great. The same tone that you invite people to a party is how we should be inviting people to the kingdom of God. Oh, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be this and that and this. Um, People need to be convinced that there's a party on the other side, and the church becomes weaker when we think that people need a theology. They don't need a doctrine. They don't need a theology. They need a party. Most people are just so caught up with checking their fields, they forget there's a life to be lived, something joyful. I don't know about you, but whenever I tell people, like, that we went to Glacier together and we go to the Dells together, people, like, get this look in their eye. What kind of weird group of people do you hang out with? I hang around with the people that have, you know, we like parties. That's who we hang out with. That my house may be filled. I think it's important we understand the will of God is that the house gets filled. There's going to be variety. There's going to be two of some, three of others, but there will be a full house. I didn't even get a groan on that one. All right, first lesson, be humble. Don't be filled up with yourself. Second lesson, say yes to the invite. Don't be filled with excuses. Choose Jesus. Accept the invite. Third lesson, leave everything and follow Christ. Here it is. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, they've left the house, and this is still Sabbath, and he turns and he says to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You want a cannot? I can't come. I just got married. Here's a cannot. You can't be Jesus' disciple unless you turn her that wife and you hate them. What? What kind of teaching is this? This is like a prime example of one you could take out of context. Uh, let's Verse 26. If anyone comes to me. So he's establishing it's not just the Jews that are invited to the feast. It's anyone. Anyone can come to him. He's also very artfully replaced the master of the feast in his story with himself. People say Jesus never claimed he was God. What kind of man says, follow me. I'm the head of, I'm the master of the feast. Right? This kind of thing is either blasphemy or he's actually the messenger of the host. And he's claimed that to follow him is to go to a wedding feast. It's more than just accepting people here. He's explaining to the master's feast, they have all been invited 
and they all have invitations. Anyone who wants to come, not just the disciples. And then you get the phrase, does not hate. Wow. I don't know if your Bibles use the word hate or not. Mine does. I'm in the New King James. And I'm, like, I'm reading that going, wait a second. Wait, I got to hate people? Like Jesus commanding me to hate my wife? Jesus is using extremely strong and striking language here. That's true. In the Greek, it's the word meseo, which means to consider something to be loved less than or to detest something, put something lower. With the seating at the house being either exalted or humbled by the seating arrangement, this word makes a ton of sense because it's a ranking word. So to hate something is to consider it so much lower that you are demoting it, you're hating it. And so it's an interesting word. There's a different Greek word for hate like we think of it, like I hate that person, I rage against them. This isn't that word, it's a different word. And it's, it's a really tough one to translate. And I actually like that the translators use the word hate because I think that's the spirit with which Jesus uses the word. He's using an extreme piece of language here, even though throughout his ministry, he's taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He's taught us to love one another. So he has a ministry of love, but in this particular passage, he uses this translation that's here. So if you wanted to like use the, the Greek literal translation of this, it says, does not love less his father and mother. If you don't demote your father and mother below Jesus, again, he's either blasphemy here or he's God, one of the two. But if you don't put your mom and your dad underneath Jesus, something's busted and you're not his disciple. You're only his disciple if you rank things beneath him. What a claim for any teacher to make. Like if I said this to my kids in a middle school, I'd be, I'd be sent off on administrative leave really quickly. Right? So this is what Jesus says to his disciples. It is a comparative statement building on the excuse of the spouses because they're probably leaving going like, hey, you know, the new spouse thing's a legit reason here, Jesus. Are you kidding? And it's like he turns on the crowd and he says, if you don't put me above that, you're not my disciple. Clearly an all-in kind of message. This is why we study the word. Father, mother, wife, children, he puts the strongest examples of obligation that we have. These are actual holy mandated obligations. One of the commandments is to honor your father and mother and to take care of them. One of the commandments is a husband to love their wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. So these are, he's using things that, if you look at the whole counsel of God, we actually do have responsibility towards our father and mother. We actually do have responsibility towards our wife. And the obligation of a parent to their children is absolutely rock solid when you look at the scriptures. But Jesus is saying you have to put him above those biblically mandated obligations that you have. And if you don't detest, if you don't lower the value of those things beneath Jesus, you're not his disciple. This is a hard message to hear, you guys, isn't it? Because all of you are thinking of those people in your life that do take precedent. You do have obligations to them. Sometimes the most deceptive kind of idol worship is to honor things that are good, but they're not God. To honor some passages of the Bible that have earthly laws and rules for us, but to ignore the heavenly obligations that we have. Verse 27 says, whoever, again, anybody, not just the disciples, the invitation's wide open. And then he uses a phrase, bear his cross. Remember, he hasn't gone to the cross yet. 
But this is horrifying and striking. And even within their lifetimes, the Romans have slaughtered Jewish people and hung them on crosses along the roadside. So that if you travel from one town to the another in this period of time in this part of the world, you see people dying on crosses all the time. And they don't have nice little loincloths on. You get to see them in all their shame. And it's brutal and horrible. So when he says you have to hate your mother and father, he's meaning for that to have an impact. And when he says you have to bear a cross, he's meaning for that to have impact. He's giving the most extreme version of this statement. You guys, you have to put the kingdom over your life. Even your own life, he says. Actually put God's invitation to the feast before your own life. Well, I'm going to the feast. Okay, well, this government's going to put you in a jail and kill you. Now you can't go, oh no, I'm going to go to the feast in your jail cell. Peter is caught singing in a jail cell. Maybe because it was Sabbath and it was time to sing. Not because he felt great. He's starving in a jail cell. But because God tells him to sing and worship on the Sabbath, he's going to do it anyways. So, to bear the cross... Everyone in the crowd knows what a cross is. They don't know that Jesus is going to lead the way there and how to get there. And then he says, he cannot be my disciple, literally using the same language from the excuses that were given before. If you make an excuse about what you cannot do for Jesus, he's going to say, you cannot be my disciple. He's going to reflect that language in total justice. That pits the I cannot come and against you cannot learn from me. If you haven't prioritized these things, the carnal versus the heavenly. If you can't put God first, if you can't say no to your mom, then you can't learn from Jesus. If you can't put your own life and your own fears aside, you simply cannot learn from Jesus. So we can note that Peter has a family. Moses did. Abraham did. Abraham actually spared Isaac in love. God never actually demands the hatred of a family in the way we think of it. Like biblically, it just never happens. But Jesus is saying, like, most followers aren't going to necessarily die on a cross, but they should all be ready to die on a cross. Most families will not have to have it out with their mom, but we should be ready to have it out with our mom. We need to set those boundaries. And again, don't shoot the messenger, you guys. Honestly, like, I'm just, this is what Jesus was trying to say when he put this out there for this multitude of people all excited about the good stuff. Jesus heals, he loves people, he accepts invitations, he's this great teacher, he speaks truth and love, he's so awesome, but then he turns around and says something like this. Well, in Mark, we see the multitudes wither when they get this message. They're like, whoa, that's going way too far. It's a lot to bear. How do you get into heaven? One, be humble, recognize your sin. Two, say yes, accept the invitation. Number three, put Jesus first, be all in. And in that sense, the heaven's going to be full, you guys. Lots of people will make this decision throughout the last 2,000 years. And, and a number of them had to go to the cross to do that. Some, a number of them had to have it out with their own families who didn't accept Jesus, but they wanted to. Uh, I think of uh, the son of one of the Hamas leaders right now that's on the internet because he became a Christian. His whole family rejects him. He's got death threats against him. And so be grateful that your family hasn't put a, a death warrant out on your life when you accept Jesus, because some Christians do face that. We share an invite to heaven. We should also share that there's a cost to getting into heaven. There, there are untested oxen that may have to wait. That's the cost. There's stuff in your life that might have to take a bad back seat.
Jesus never says to get rid of the oxen or to not have fields or to not get married. Again, you can twist this however you want. The point is those things should take a back seat. And that that's okay. Actually, there's a beauty to all this. When we present the gospel, how simple it is and how low cost it is, how easy it is, all you got to do is say this prayer and then we don't explain the trade-offs, we're cheapening the gospel for people. They should make a decision to follow Jesus and be fully informed as to what that decision is. Frankly, even in these terms, a humble person can more easily see the value of heaven that it outweighs the earthly losses because they're humble. They don't think they have that much here on earth. So humility actually opens our eyes to the trade being worth it. If you're prideful and you think you're all that, why do you need Jesus? You're doing great in life. Everything's hokey-dory. You don't need Jesus when you're full of pride. But you do suddenly open your eyes when you're broken. And sometimes God tests people to prepare them for that. Verse 28. Which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. First of all, none of you know how many times we've been to the hardware store since we started our project out there. <laughs> Clearly, I'm a fool. So I read, because we have to run 20 million times to go get stuff. But in this era, they had to ship stone in and rocks. So they were a little better about planning because transportation wasn't as easy as running eight minutes to the store. Um, but it kind of makes sense, right? Don't we make fun of people that don't plan ahead, that don't count the cost, that don't think about decisions before they make them? This is, this is damning to the cheap gospel that sometimes gets presented. If we don't tell people the costs, then we make fun of people. Imagine Christians that say, I'm going to accept Jesus into my life, and then they don't make any changes. They don't put him first. They are worthy of mockery, and trust me, the world loves to mock hypocritical Christians. Lukewarm Christians are a joke. Well, you say you're a Christian, but all you pine for is stuff of the world. You say you're a believer, but you're just a, 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 a sad excuse for people two steps behind what the world's doing. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. Well, I wanted to have war, but I don't. actually, let's make some peace here because we didn't weigh this one out all the way. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He repeats the thought. Don't come and be a disciple of Jesus if you haven't weighed the cost. He uses two images, one of building and one of going to battle. The Christian faith is both. We are building the kingdom of God every single week on, on Sundays. And the other is a battle. We go out six days a week and we are in the war. And it's a spiritual battle that we fight. It's interesting. Every major power on earth was built out of pure force and fear and military might. There's one country on this earth that's built around God's intervention. They were given land. That's Israel. There's another country on this earth built around an idea that's strongly based in the Old Testament. That's the United States of America. You've got two very exceptional nations that have been a model to the world. And when we say the Western world, we think of a world that's been strongly influenced by Jesus Christ. And so you look at geopolitics and you look at how this plays out, there's clearly a global conversation happening. And guess what's at the center of that conversation right now? Israel. It's a little slip of land about the size of New Jersey. 
right? That's the middle of our geopolitics. Why would I accept an invitation and not go when I'm called up? Why would I go out to battle and not go with the forces that I need to win? Why would I try to build a tower and not have the supplies I need? I tell the kids, whenever you get the supplies, we get what we think we need plus 10% more, which allows for mistakes and everything else. That's what I call the 10% rule. Uh, it still doesn't work. Building and battles both usually cost more than you ever thought they would. War is extremely costy, and you don't get into it unless you know what you're getting into. Building a tower, construction, you almost always need more than what you thought you did. Becoming a Christian, you will need more from God than you ever thought you needed from God. Count the cost. Recognize your sin. Know that the sin needs to go, and then recognize your priorities and straighten those out. And then Jesus says in these words, forsake all, very similar word, demote everything. Everything on this earth takes second place, even you, even your own life. All means all. Well, I felt like a bumper sticker there. Verse 33, so likewise, this is a comparison of preparing for the kingdom of God. Can you afford to follow Jesus? Can you give up what you need to? Can you let go of what you have to? The oxen buyer didn't plan well. The groom maybe didn't pick a godly wife. What kind of wife would make it so this guy couldn't go to the feast? Really, wives? You're going to make it so your new groom can't go to the feast? Yeah, why, don't, why wouldn't she go with? I, then you start to think of what kind of wife this guy just married. I can't, which means she made a rule. And guys, you know, that ends the conversation sometimes. Forsake all that you have. That's the key. There's no first seats of honor. There's no excuses. There's no idols. You say goodbye to all of it. You come to the end of yourself. You accept Jesus. If we accept Christianity, we can be tempted to start acting and working like a Christian. Don't do that. If we accept Christ, we are tempted to start acting and looking like Christ. We're not here to adopt Christianity. We're here to follow Christ. Do you see the difference? It's selfless. It's healing other people. It's living for other people, forsaking all to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So if you want to follow him, start healing people on the Sabbath. If you want to follow Jesus, start doing what he has told us to do on the Sabbath. Worship, study the word, pray, Fellowship. I like the fellowship part. It usually comes with food. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Salvation. Who gets it? What does it mean? There's three elements. Be humble. Say yes. All in for Jesus. That's who gets into heaven. And if you know those things and you can with a whole heart say, I'm doing those things, you have assurance of your salvation. You will be invited to the feast. Amen? You're in. But I'm not perfect. But I screw up. But I backslide. Okay, check your heart. You're in. I backslide is a statement of humility. You recognize your sin. Say yes to Jesus, but I want to go to the invitation. I actually want to go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven? If you can say yes to that question, that's number two. And then have you put Jesus first? Man, I'm working on it. And Jesus knows you're working on it. He invited the people from the highways and the hedges. He doesn't, you don't need to be a proper Jew to get into heaven. If you do one of those without the other, it gets messed up. And Satan loves this. He loves humble people that do not turn to Jesus because then they're just pitiful and shame-filled 
and they feel less than and they need hours and hours of counseling that never go anywhere. You can say yes to Jesus with no commitment, no humility. That's emotionalism. Good luck. You're going to wither up in about a year. Oh, you couldn't get to that same high you did on the, the worship concert night. You can try to be all in for Jesus, but never humble yourself and never say yes to the invitation. And that's called hypocrisy. And, it, and, it, and Satan loves all three of these things. He loves devastated people that call themselves Christians, emotionalistic people that call themselves Christians, and hypocrites that call themselves Christians. All of them are an embarrassment to the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Unless you can forsake all, you cannot be my disciple. You're not one of mine. And there will be people that say, oh, I was all in for you, Jesus. And they'll be like, I don't know you. You never said yes to the invitation. You never really wanted to be here. You skipped all the time. That shadow I gave you called the church, you didn't even care about that. It meant nothing to you. So why would you think that if you didn't go do things to people on a Sunday, why would you think, why do you think heaven's going to be any different? Guess what we're doing in heaven, you guys? We're going to study the word. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. And there's going to be a big, huge feast. Rinse, repeat, all eternity. Sounds like a good thing for me. I want to be there for that. I can't imagine what recipes God's cooking up over 2,000 years. I want to be there for that. Danny's got a few of them already, I'm sure. All three, humility, accepting, and forsaking all. Hear it, believe it, do it. We can point out sin. We can try to humble others. That's called judgmentalism. You can invite people to the feast without telling them about humility, and that's called cheapening salvation. You can live for Jesus without humbling yourself or without accepting the invitation, and you're a self-deluded religious isolationist. All of these things become fall. And, and frankly, so many of us are scarred by the church because we see judgmentalism, cheapened salvation, and, and self-deluded people. And we see them all over inside the church. Everyone's excited. Everyone's invited. But you have to give something up, like testing your oxen, in order to show up for the feast. You have to make it a commitment. So you maybe have to tell your wife you're going to see her after lunch. Ooh, that's a big one. Who gets into heaven? Lots of people do. Let's read the last verse. This should have a lot of impact after all that. Verse 34. Hey, salt is good. So are wives. So are oxen. So is owning land. Those are all good things. Salt's good. But if the salt's lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? What good is any of that stuff? It all burns. It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears, let him hear. Boy, if you hear anything, hear that. All these good things that we have in our life, all these wonderful things, if they don't stay salty, they're worthless. They don't do anything. And a lot of people think of the salt like we're the salt of the earth. And, and so let's put that there. If we don't humble ourselves, the reason salt is good is because it's salty. The nature of salt is saltiness. And you, you get this chemical co combination that when taken apart is actually toxic, but when you put it together, it's actually good for people. It softens our tissue, right? And helps to maintain things. You, you can't live without salt. Food, water, salt. You need salt to even survive. Or you have cardiac arrest pretty quick. Everything will harden up on you. If salt then loses its saltiness, its flavor, it's not good for anything. You can't even use it on the road because it doesn't kill weeds anymore. It's not salty anymore. It's just junk. And it says it's neither fit for the land or for the dunghill. Like, 
sometimes Jesus uses words that are very extreme. Dunghill is a sanitized version of such a word. Um, we could have other words that I will keep it fairly sanitized for ourselves. You never know, some kid might listen to this. It's not good for crud. Let's just put it to that. It's just good for nothing, right? But men throw it out. What more will God do to people that are not? The reason we're valuable is because we're Christ-like. The nature of a Christian is to be like Christ. But if we lose the Christ-likeness part, we're not worth much. And that's where we start. That's the, the humility should sink in on this. Boy, without Christ, I don't, I'm not worth anything. And people retain their Christian nature are people that get used by Christ. People that show up to the feast are the ones that are asked to help out with the next feast. Right? So there's a faithfulness here. And the idea of having ears, let him hear. Jesus isn't expecting that everybody in his audience is going to get this. And we shouldn't either. When we share this with people, we shouldn't expect that everybody out there is going to get this figured out. Pride's going to get in the way with a lot of people. Our walk isn't just to be humble. It's not just to accept an invitation, but it is also to live without reservation or apology for Jesus Christ. And those three things go together. People are, I don't need to do works to get saved. No, you don't. But if you get saved and you don't follow Christ, you're not salty. There's nothing about you that's changed. And so there's this mix of this that we read it and we do it. And if the doing doesn't happen, then you maybe won't be at the feast. And I don't want to see that happen to any of my brothers and sisters or my family. Read it and do it. It's that simple. No matter what lame excuses we come up with, part of how iron sharpens iron is we sometimes lovingly call each other out on lame excuses. Like we're here to be all in and that, that, that there's nothing short of that that we want to do. So let's take those things, cast them aside. So like Paul says, we can run the race as though we want to win it. And we pursue it with everything we have because that's all we have. And everything else takes second fiddle to that. Amen? All right. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you. And um, Lord, I know human nature. I know my own soul as I've looked through this chapter this week and how hard hitting some of these messages are. I think that's the way Luke wrote it. I think that's the way you wanted us to hear it. So Lord, open and soften our hearts. Humble us. We're not perfect. We don't know everything. Our pride does get in the way of this message. So Lord, may we set it aside and cast it aside so that we can hear you because at the depth of our heart, there's something good in us that you're appealing to, that we know that it's right to put you first. You're the God creator of the universe. You're the majestic, almighty master of the feast. And Lord, nothing short of living and serving you is worth anything. So Lord, help us to build up our treasures in heaven because we understand where they lie. Help us, Lord, to put everything else second, even good things like family and property and um, pets. Um, Lord, even the things that we love and we adore in this life, Lord, may they take second place to you and our adoration for you. May the, the seat we've been given be one that we're content in. And Lord, may we just honor you with our voices. May we honor you with the words of our mouth. May we honor you with our actions and our deeds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.